Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith, the Osborne Professor of United States History and Politics at Oxford. In 1776, 13 British colonies launched a movement to secede from the British Empire, and after five years of war against a powerful military state, they achieved their independence. Over the following decades, Americans cheered on secessionist movements in the rest of the world, in Greece, which seceded from the Ottoman Empire, across South America, where the new republics modelled their constitutions on that of the United States, in Hungary, Poland and Ireland, and in Italy, where a long struggle for nationhood was still in train. And so in 1861, when 11 states launched a movement to secede from the American Union, they had plenty of positive examples to draw on. Yet after four years of war against a powerful military state, they failed and were forcibly reincorporated back into the Union. The men who created the Confederacy in 1861 had extraordinary self-confidence. They genuinely believed that they could create a new slave-based republic which would be accepted by the rest of the world. How did they think they could get away with it? Well, in part, it was because they thought they could hold Britain and France to ransom because of their dependence on southern-grown raw cotton. No doubt it was also because they thought they could fight off any attempt by the Union to suppress their new nation, and so the rest of the world would accept their independence as a fait accompli. But it was also, fundamentally, because they thought that liberals in Europe would see their bid for national self-determination in the same way that they saw Italy's or Hungary's. Anne Tucker, an assistant professor at the University of North Georgia, has written a book called Newest Born of Nations, which explores how the example of European nationalist movements inspired Confederates, and also why the parallels were so problematic. I spoke to Anne about these issues, and I begun by asking her how Americans responded to the European nationalist revolutions of 1848. So Americans watch these revolutions in Europe. And one of the key factors here, I think, is they want these other nations to succeed. They want what they see as the model of the American Revolution to be successfully enacted abroad. If for no other reason, then it's going to enhance this American exceptionalism and Americans can pat themselves on their back about how they have inspired all these other Republican nations and it's going to make them feel good about themselves. So if for no other reason than this self-serving desire to celebrate American principles spreading abroad, they want these nations to succeed. And of course, with the Italian Risorgimento, there is an additional element of this idea that the birthplace of democracy, and we saw this with the Greek nationalist movement as well, there is this fulfillment of a historical destiny that has been destroyed for millennia now and is going to now once again be fulfilled. And so that's an element that really plays into, again, Greece and Italy, that the glory of these ancient nations and um, republics is once again going to be fulfilled in the modern era. So, like I say, at the opening of these movements, Americans were hopeful 
and very enthusiastic about the possibility of these liberal nationalist ideas reaching fulfillment in Italy and in all these other nations. As the movements really fail, or at least, you know, in the Italian case, finally reached success in 1860, but of course had failed for decades before that point, that's when white Americans once again resume this pattern of this circular reasoning that the people aren't capable because they didn't pull it off. So enormous enthusiasm, but also tempered by this skepticism with, you know, ready blame to be assigned when it didn't play out the way Americans had wanted it to. So American exceptionalism wins either way. So if if revolutions around the world fail, that's because Americans are just kind of better at revolutions than everybody else. And if revolutions around the world succeed, that's because America is an inspiration that inspires everyone else. Either way, American exceptionalism in a different sense is validated. Um, If if Americans, uh, and we're talking, and I'm going to break the concept of Americans down, because we urgently need to do that in this conversation. But... um, uh, if nevertheless, to keep with this generalization for the moment, if, if Americans um, reacted with with a, with a degree of um, sort of historical self-knowledge to the um, success of the Resorgimento, they could note that it was successful in the end because of French military intervention, just as the American separatist um, uh, movement was in the in the in the 1780s. Right? Without you know, in both cases, it's French military intervention which um, enables a um, a separatist movement to succeed. Um, but anyway, that's that's kind of that's by the by. Um, so let's let's move on then to this second great uh, secession movement in North America. And this one in the end, of course, did not succeed. And that's the secession of, well, first of all, seven and then eventually 11 slave states to create a separate Confederate States of America. So, and this is where your own work, Anne, has has really focused, isn't it? You've written this terrific book, which is, which looks at the, the movement to create a Confederate nation as it were, through the lens of this transnational um, liberal separatist thinking. And so the question really is, and big question, because you've written a whole book trying to answer it, but is 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 how then did Southerners in the run-up to secession of 1860-61, how did they relate their own secession project to the liberal secessionist revolutionary projects that we've been talking about all the way around the world in Latin America and in Europe? Did they see it as the same or different? What examples were useful to them? What were Oh, big question indeed. So the primary strain of thought that I found among secessionists was really the idea that white Southerners were going to follow in the footsteps of European nationalist movements in seeking to create basically to fulfill national self-determination, to create a nation based on these ideas of freedom and self-government. And the key examples that they point to and this strain of thought really were Italy, Ireland, Hungary, Poland. It almost becomes this litany where they just unself, um, they just kind of repeat again and again, Italy, Ireland, Hungary, Poland. And that's going to be 
a problematic comparison to be sure, because of course, if the secessionists and then Confederates are claiming that they follow in the footsteps of nations seeking freedom and self-government, the Confederacy is really premised on the opposite. It's premised on slavery. And so that's going to create both ideological and pragmatic challenges for this strain of thought, which I think is part of why we also see another strain of thought emerging where other white Southerners and secessionists claim not that the secession movement follows the footsteps of European nationalist movements, but it improves on it through its conservatism and slavery. This is the idea, of course, that the Confederate nation was going to purify nationalism of what it claimed was the excessive liberalism that supposedly doomed the nationalist movements in Europe. Because, of course, as of 1861, the Italian nation was the only one that had succeeded in creating an independent nation. So this more conservative interpretation says it was the excess liberalism, the attempts to create too much social and political equality that doomed these revolutions abroad, and the Confederacy is going to correct for that. So what we really see is secessionists are really being quite um, flexible, shall we say, in the ways that they're using these international models, they're really willing to do whatever it takes to find a way to claim that the Confederacy deserves a place within this international community of nations, whether as the latest example of a legitimate nation or as an example of a nation that improves upon the model of nationalism. Um, that we saw carrying out in the European cases. Does that also, that strategy also have the advantage that it can plug into Southerners' conception of the original American secessionist movement, i.e. the American Revolution, as being, you know, the best kind of revolution? So just as the, so what they were doing then in 1861 was reenacting or reestablishing or repurifying uh, the ideals and aims and strategies of the original American secession movement, which had succeeded until it had exactly. been perverted by and Yankees is, and abolitionists. That is indeed where, what we see um, the yeah, secessionists no, arguing is that the Northerners had been corrupted by all the evil isms of Europe. So in this view, what they're looking at is the abolitionism and the North, the more liberalism and progressivism that was developing in this Northern reform movement had been a direct result of anarchism and socialism and all these other, again, evil isms that they saw that, again, they believed had determined the failure of the revolutions of 1848, had sought to pervert the social and political order by creating equality rather than hierarchy. And absolutely, the secessionists directly blame the European movements on influencing the North, and therefore they claim 
really kind of corrupting the North and pulling it away from the original American Revolution, the original ideas and enactment of the American Revolution. So yeah, these international comparisons are a very convenient way to demonize the North as well as to legitimize the South. So the example of uh, European and indeed Latin American revolutionary separatist nationalist movements is at best an ambiguous one. It has ambivalent implications for the Confederates. Um, What about looking at it from the point of view of the United States when confronted with secession? Since, after all, Northerners in the 1830s and 40s had been more enthusiastic in supporting these liberal nationalist movements than had Southerners. And we should perhaps talk um, here for a moment by way of example of the famous tour, and I think it was 1852, right. wasn't it, of Louis Kossuth, 1851-52, the Hungarian nationalist uh, leader who travelled throughout the United States, generally got a better reception, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, in the North than he did uh, in the South. But, I mean, he was... You know, he was yeah. he was a big figure, right? I mean, he was so, you know, Northerners kind of loved this stuff. They loved the idea of national self-determination when it was happening elsewhere. When it was happening on their doorstep, um, all of a sudden it was uh treason and justified this extraordinary mobilization of military resources in order to crush it. So how did Northerners You know, that this circle? is where I have to go back to the title of your podcast here, The Last Best Hope. And this is where Lincoln and so many of Kosuth's broader compatriots, the 48ers who had fled the failed revolutions and moved to the United States and now are volunteering to fight for the United States and the Civil War, they see the United States, of course, as the last best hope of republicanism. And what they recognize is if you allow secession, then the republic cannot work because particularly because this is secession, especially the first seven states secede because they don't like the results of a fair democratic election. And if every time you have a fair democratic election, the losers secede and leave the nation, then self-government cannot work. It indeed does fail. There's not going to be a nation left after many elections. And so that's really the recognition that Lincoln and the 48ers and many Northerners are fighting for is the recognition that to make this project of self-government and republicanism work, you cannot allow for secession, particularly over the results of a fair democratic election. And of course, the broader context here is that as we've been talking about, most of these movements for republicanism had failed in Europe. And while they had succeeded in Latin America, as we've talked about, they did not succeed to the extent that Americans necessarily had wanted them to. And so there's this sense throughout the Atlantic world that republicanism is potentially threatened, potentially under um, attack on the retreat. And so conservatives, of course, are arguing that this is all proof that people cannot 
self-govern, that it is not a viable form of governance. And so the fear here is, you know, going back to the American exceptionalism, the United States was the one bold example of republicanism that had worked. And so if it fails, then there's no hope for republicanism elsewhere. Thus, the extraordinary fight to preserve the American republic, again, as the last best hope, of these ideologies for the world, not just for the United States. It's not national self-determination per se. It's only national self-determination or separatism as a movement. It's only legitimate when it's advocating liberal ends and it's trying to separate from an illiberal autocratic Yeah, I think that would be a fair kind of assessment that there's something fundamentally different and separating from a republic that your state had chosen to join and participated in the creation of versus separating from a colonial empire that is holding you as a subjugated colony or even a you know a European empire the Austro-Hungarian empire um, subjecting Italy to its rule for example so yeah I think that would be a key difference between what's happening in the American case and what was happening in the Latin American and European cases. What about the idea that government is supposed to be based on the consent of the governed? That was flexible for many Americans in this time period, particularly for the Southerners that I study. Um, certainly, But yes, yeah, certainly that was part of this idea as well. Um, that the southern states had consented to this government when they joined the United States initially. Um, So far as how that plays out in terms of why not just let the southern states secede, they've withdrawn their consent and now want to give it to another nation. Of course, there were northerners who advocated for just that. Um, They argued that the best course of action, you know, even throughout the war, were arguing that the best course of action was to just let the southern states go and they can do their own thing, be a slave nation then, and let the United States take its own path forward instead. So these were debates, and that's something that I always try and talk about when I talk about my work, because I think that's one of the things that my work does is reveal that these ideas were not set in stone in the 1860s and the Civil War. On some level, the Civil War really was a fight over which of these ideas was accurate. So do the states have the right to withdraw their consent and secede, or is this a republic and you don't get to secede from a republic? That was one of the things that the Civil War was contesting. Can you have a republic in the middle of the 19th century based on, you know, fundamentally premised upon slaveholding? Does slavery, can it still fit within this broader project of liberal nationalism in an age of widespread abolition where the United States was one of only three slaveholding nations left? Or has slavery now been pushed out of this project of liberal nationhood and it no longer fits? 
is the South following in the footsteps of these other nationalist movements? Or is Southern secession fundamentally something different? I think it's easy for us from our perspective, you know, so far in the future to look back and kind of assume that we know the answers to those questions. Of course, slavery was incompatible with liberal nationalism. Of course, you can't secede from a republic that you had chosen to be a part of the creation of. But those were the questions that the Civil War answered. I, I don't. I, I, those okay. those the answer to those questions aren't self evident <laughs> to me. So the, the the second one, I mean, secession from a secession from a republic that you've chosen to be a part of. I mean, there are sure. plenty of examples around the world of where that happens. I mean, if Quebec were to secede from Canada, there wouldn't be a war to keep it in. When Scotland votes for independence, right. I'm certainly not going <laughs> to volunteer to fight for the union, and uh, I don't imagine many other people are. True. So I, yeah. I don't think that right. is at all uh, self evident. And I and and on the relationship between slavery. Um, and and um, these European liberal movements. I mean, as as you know, there were plenty of uh, f- uh, European immigrants to the United States, as well as those who didn't go to the United States, who had been involved in nationalist um, liberal, we could call them in quotes, liberal nationalist movements, yeah. who had no problem with slavery at all. There were former Chartists from Britain and Ireland who. Became, arrived in the United States in the early 1850s and became staunch Democrat, pro-slavery Democrats. They just had no problem with that at all. After all, if slavery is conceptualized as it usually was in for many people in Europe in the 19th century in much broader terms than simply the chattel slavery, the ownership of property and man, which is what it meant in the United States context, if it was conceptualized much more broadly to simply be the oppression of one people by another, or even in the in the in the labor movement, the denial of autonomy through wage slavery, then 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 slavery existed in plenty of other places and was in the minds of many of these people just as egregious as as they thought it was in the in the United States. And that's why when you know when someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe came over to England and had tea with the Duchess of Sutherland the radical papers in Britain were up in arms about both of their hypocrisy because the Duchess of Sutherland was meanwhile clearing all her Highland estates just as tyrannically, so the papers claimed, as any Southern slaveholder was. And they couldn't, they refused to accept that there was a, a, a meaningful or big enough distinction to justify the, 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 the moral opprobrium heaped on black slavery in the United States right. and not on white slavery. I'm using their terminology in, in other yeah, contexts. Yeah, I mean, that's... Um, so, anyway, right, that's, case in point. You know, I agree with you. I'm agreeing with you that these right. things Everything are not at all self Everything was very much in flux. The and these, um, you know, really that's what the Civil War was about, trying to determine the answer to these questions. And it wasn't necessarily... I think you're right to say it wasn't necessarily entirely determinate. Certainly, separatist movements and secession does continue to be an issue in many areas throughout the world today. But yeah, certainly to look back and say that, you know, the secession of the South on the basis of slavery was obviously beyond the pale of the ideas of the time really just wasn't the case. That was what the Civil War was fought to determine. It put 
um, British liberals in a right quandary, didn't it, in 1861? So you, you think of the famous duo of, of, of Richard Cobden and John Bright. And John Bright was absolutely convinced right from the beginning that as a liberal, he should be on the side of the union. And Richard Cobden was in turmoil about the whole thing. I mean, to him, it was just brain exploding because on the one hand, uh, what the Southerners stood for was national self-determination and also free trade. There was no way he was comfortable supporting a war because, you know, that was the whole point of international liberalism in part was was to, was to avoid war. Um, obviously, on the other hand, he was anti-slavery. But the, the but the whole thing was kind of brain exploding for him. And then you have the famous example of William Gladstone when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in his speech in Newcastle in, I think, September, was it September 1862, in which he said, We may have our own opinions about slavery. We may be for or against the South. But there is no doubt that Jefferson Davis and other leaders of the South have made an army. They are making, it appears, a navy. And they have made what is more than either. They have made a nation. And, you know, this is, this is Gladstone, who was at least, you know, only three or four years away from being the, the great um, tribune of, of Victorian liberalism. And, 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 and even for Gladstone... Slavery was not at that point, just before the Emancipation Proclamation, was not at that point the critical factor that meant that he was forced to see Southern separatism in a different category from Italian nationalism, Polish nationalism, and 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 so on. Um, but then the Emancipation Proclamation happened, right? And that changed the deal, didn't it? It did. Really, it, before the Emancipation Proclamation, like you're saying, a lot of Europeans looked at the Civil War, and I think brain exploding is a good way to put it, they weren't really sure what it was all about, why people were seceding from a republic, what is going on, but the South said self-determination. They like self-determination. So sure, they can you know support it from a distance. They don't want to get involved they, in the meanwhile, war. Meanwhile, Lincoln said it's all about union, it's not about slavery. Right, and that didn't really resonate particularly well abroad. And of course, it was, as you pointed out, the Emancipation Proclamation that changed the calculus, because suddenly Europeans were able to look at this war and go, now we know what this is about. It's about slavery. And of course, abolitionist Europeans were going to then support the United States as opposed to the Confederacy. So it really was the Emancipation Proclamation that was a game changer in terms of European perception of what this war was even all about. So in the end, then, Confederates failed completely in their attempt to situate, to persuade the rest of the world that their revolution, their movement, their separatist movement should be seen in the same category as all these others. Was that, uh, was that failure inevitable? Ooh, interesting question. On some level... Absolutely not. So in part, this has to take us back to Confederate diplomacy, which was an abject failure 
in part due to unforced errors. So, of course, famously, the Confederate diplomats were just about the poorest choices you could find. Um, you know, not very diplomatic people, basically. Yeah, not diplomatic people. Sending someone to France who doesn't speak French, sending a rabid, fire-eating, pro-slavery ideologue to largely abolitionist Britain. The choice of strategy was, of course, King Cotton, hold Cotton hostage and try and use it to force uh, recognition. Whereas, you know, and of course, I probably would think this because I focus on all these intellectual ideas. But again, I think if they had focused more on this idea of self-determination and their official diplomatic program, we have evidence showing that perhaps that would have resonated more successfully. Although, again, I don't think they, I don't think there was ever a world in which Britain and France would have rushed to support the Confederacy because they didn't want to join a war, if nothing else. Um, it, w- it was going to be a hard sell for the Confederates to prove that they were doing the same thing that these other nations were doing. It wasn't an impossible sell. Again, the self-determination resonated. And as you pointed out, high-level government officials, both in Britain as well as in France, at least personally bought the self-determination argument. We see, you know, we've recognized Italy, the Confederacy is going to be next, both being creatures of the same God, basically. So it wasn't inevitable that this failed, but it was very much an uphill battle, particularly once slavery was brought into this issue, because that's where the Confederate claims to fight for a liberal nation really just fell apart up against the United States fighting for freedom. Really big picture question, mm-hmm. Anne. What does this all tell us about the relationship between American political culture and the idea of revolution? The American Revolution was in itself this contradiction between a revolution based on freedom and equality and rights, but a revolution that still accepted slavery. This is the paradox at the heart of the founding of the American nation, a nation founded both on freedom and on slavery. And so throughout every other revolution that we've talked about here, that really is still the central paradox and how Americans, whether Northern or Southern, are responding to these revolutions, as well as how these revolutions relate to their own nation. They're continually reading these revolutions through their desire, on the one hand, to see freedom, self-government, national self-determination, but their fear, on the other hand, that these revolutions are going to go too far and subvert the social and political hierarchy and give too much power to the people that they saw as undeserving of this power. And so throughout American political history, then, that's the central paradox, a very real desire for the really admirable ideas of the American Revolution, of freedom and equality and rights, but always tempered, on the other hand, by that fear that white Americans had, and white men in particular had, of giving anyone but white men access to that freedom and liberty and equality. 
Anne Tucker, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Anne Tucker, whose book, The Newest Born of Nations, European Nationalist Movements and the Making of the Confederacy, was published in 2020 by the University of Virginia Press. As Anne said there, the Confederates' half-hearted efforts to cast themselves as the heirs of Garibaldi or Kossuth were stifled by the ideological strength of their foe, the United States. Abraham Lincoln thought that the real issue of the world was the eternal struggle between liberty and tyranny, between, as he put it, the common right of humanity and the divine right of kings. In that great struggle, the United States was on the side of good, and those like the slaveholders of the Confederacy who opposed it represented wrong. But so many other liberals around the world outside the United States essentially accepted Lincoln's reasoning, suggests that in the end, national self-determination was not so much an end in itself in the 19th century liberal imagination as a means to the end of what they called liberty. As so often, what matters was the power of the idea that America was the last best hope of Earth. And you've been listening to The Last Best Hope podcast from the RAI, Oxford Centre for the Study of the United States and its Place in the World. I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to others. Subscribe and like us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Goodbye.